www.thepeopleofunity.com. Well, good morning, everyone. That was an amazing introduction. Ish. <laughs> I mean, ick. No, I'm just kidding. Um, hey, uh, glad, to, glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, we are, uh, we've been in uh, our series on First and Second Samuel, and um, uh, so we're kind of rolling into that. This is like week six at this point in time, so I uh, hope you've been kind of following along with us for the journey. If you haven't, you can always catch up on things online or uh, porticocommunity.com, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, just a recap of last week, because we started last week with a kind of a string of events and stories where uh, they're all a little bit interrelated, but it's like four chapters worth, and we were not going to try and tackle that all in one week. So uh, now I have to kind of recap last week uh, to set us up for today. So last week, uh, we talked about or read about how the people of Israel, uh, they attacked the Philistines, and they lost the battle. And when they did, there were over 4,000, there were 4,000 soldiers who had been killed. And they asked the right questions, right, when that happened. They asked, why did this happen to us? Like, why did God let this happen to us? Now remember that Samuel was established as a prophet to the nation, right? They, God was speaking to the nation through Samuel um, as a prophet, but instead of consulting him uh, and seeking God, instead they just tried to figure it all out on their own. Okay, so what they needed to do, of course, was turn back to God. Their hearts were not in the right place. They were not following him. But instead, they decided they needed to take their most sacred holy object, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence literally figuratively, or sorry, literally dwelled with them. Uh, in, they decided to take that into the battle with them. Right? Because that was the reason they lost. Because God was too far away. So they asked the right question and they came to the wrong conclusion. And they thought that God was too physically distant from the battle, but in reality it was them who were spiritually distant from God. And so then they learned, kind of the hard way, that God is not some kind of good luck charm. Right? This time the Philistines defeated them again, but it, they killed 30,000 soldiers. Right? And on top of that, the sons of Eli, uh, the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, died in the battle, and then Eli... When he heard what had happened and that the ark was taken by the Philistines, he died as well. And this was a pretty dark day in Israel, right? Not just because the ark was gone, but because God's literal physical presence and glory went with it, right? God was no longer with his people, Israel. So that's kind of where we, we ended things last week. And today we're going to explore kind of what happens next in Kind of an unusual string of events, okay? So we're picking it up at 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to look at chapter 5 and most of chapter 6 today. So if you want to follow along, feel free to turn there, but we will have the text up on the screen as well. 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. 
And when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. When they, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all those who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Okay, now, this god that they have, Dagon, according to ancient mythology, Dagon was the father of Baal. Most scholars argue that he was originally uh, considered like the god of vegetation and grain and wheat, that sort of deity. The last part of the name, the, the, the last few letters, is similar to the Hebrew word for grain, which is gran or gran. Right? Some descriptions seem to make Dagon a storm god, possibly in connection with the need of rain for the wheat and the grain harvest. However, typically, Dagon is most often represented as a fish god, like half man, half fish. And uh, so I think there's one picture here, kind of an artifact, kind of picturing that, and that's because uh, dag in Hebrew means fish, right? So it's likely, though, that the Philistines, they just kind of adapted this god into their own culture as they occupied a lot of coastal territory, right? So the point is, like, Dagon wasn't exclusive to the Philistine people, uh, was seen as a god throughout much of the, much of the land, but, um, and other cultures recognize him as a false god as well, but the Philistines also worshipped other gods besides Dagon, right? He was just their main one. Okay, so this is a little bit about Dagon. Then when the Philistines bring the ark into their territory, they take it to the house of Dagon, like the temple um, that was made to worship their, their fish god, right? And they put the ark in with Dagon, probably as a tribute to giving them victory over Israel. Now that's not what happened. Dagon hadn't won the battle for them. God himself had allowed them to conquer the people of Israel. But they didn't see it that way. So they put the ark in the temple with Dagon. And the next morning they wake up to find their statue face down on the floor. Completely intact, apparently. Right? Face down on the floor before the ark of the Lord. Like, bowing down to the ark of the Lord. And the ark is fine. Like, what an odd coincidence, right? So they set it back up. And God goes a step further, and this time he breaks it into pieces. He breaks it into pieces on the threshold. And he's showing his power to them and the worthlessness of their false god, their false idol, right from the start. The Philistines probably should have gotten a clue right then and there that their so-called god was really nothing but a false idol. Like even if he was somehow real, he was no match for the God of Israel and his presence that was with the ark. Like they should have just buried Dagon and started worshiping the one true God instead because the signs were pretty clear. God literally cut off his hands and head upon the threshold of the door of the temple. But instead of realizing how foolish it was to worship this idol, 
they just add this superstitious ritual to it. Don't step on the threshold when you enter Dagon's temple. All right? Step on a crack, something like that. Right? Stepping on the threshold was avoided, maybe because it was thought to be sacred, because that's the place where Dagon touched down. Or it was detested because it was an object which ruined his image. Right? E- either way, despite these two warning shots that God gives them, the Philistines just kept on worshiping Dagon. And look, God's not going to let some false god or foolish idol steal his glory. He's the one true God. And he alone deserves honor and praise and glory. He's not willing to share that glory with anyone because he's the only one deserving of it. And I think this is an idea that I want to bring up and, and, uh, and just uh, make note of right now because it's pretty central to the worship songs that we're going to be focused on and singing in the second part of our, our, our time of music today. Right? God is the one who's deserving, worthy of all praise and honor and glory. But since they keep bowing down to idols, God kind of takes things to the next level. Right? Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Ashdod, by the way, is like a city, but it's a city-state area. There were a number of them, five of them. I think we talked about that last week. Five of them, five main ones that the um, Philistines controlled. So this city-state is, is where the temple is, and that's where the ark is. So knocking over their idol didn't wake them up. Smashing it to pieces didn't work. Now God brings on them a spirit of terror and they break out with what our translation calls tumors. Now, the word for tumor here is not the kind of tumor that we typically think of like cancerous tumor, cancer tumors, that sort of thing. What they had was some form of boil or painful sore, especially in the anal region. Right? An old archaic term for what they had was emeralds. And in modern terms, what they had was a very aggravated form of hemorrhoids. That's the plague. Not so fun. <laughs> he devastated or ravaged them with hemorrhoids. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about that. Right? The heathens, the unbelievers back then, they generally regarded diseases that affected the secret parts of the body as punishments from the gods for trespasses committed against them. Right? So this sent a message. The people of Ashdod likely realized that this em- epidemic that they were going through was the God of Israel demonstrating his anger against them. And so their so-called God was powerless to stop it. Like, of course he was, because he wasn't real. So here's what happens next. When the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Like, we need to get rid of this thing, right? What are we supposed to do? Now again, they could have, in that moment, chosen to get rid of the Dagon statue altogether and start worshiping the one true God of Israel. It's not what they did. They answered, 
let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Okay, so they, which is another of the city-states of the Philistine people. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Now, it doesn't really say it here, but it should probably read after that. And the Philistines in Gath were like, thanks for nothing. <laughs> right? Thanks for nothing. Verse 10, so they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But it's another city-state of Philistine, the Philistines. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. Right? Like, they see what's going on, and they're like, why are you bringing this here? Do you think we don't know what's going on with these people and these other? We don't want it. With friends like you, who needs enemies, right? They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Right? So there's a deadly panic, like maybe a terror, a depression, not really sure. This plague is crushing them. It's crushing them. So in 1 Samuel 6, 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines, Seven months. So apparently they were a little bit of slow learners. <laughs> and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send. Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They said, If you send away the Ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why this, his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Right? So they, they recognize, like, getting rid of the ark is not going to be enough. It's like they realize that God, he's not dependent upon where the ark is. This God is bigger than that. But they had to do something to appease his wrath. They had to include a guilt offering. And so they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Right? So we're finding out here that the tumors were, were not the only thing happening. There's also a plague of mice that is destroying the land. Right? So they're kind of getting the picture. God is not happy about this. And it says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did, did they not send the people away and they departed? Right, so their priests, the Philistine priests and fortune tellers, they're suggesting to them, send the ark back to Israel along with gold images of the mice 
and the tumors as an atonement for your sin. Right? Weird story, I know. This is a weird story. Like, like they, don't, they don't know for sure this is going to work even. Right? But it's like their best idea. Perhaps God will lighten his hand from off you and your God, God's and your land. Right? In other words, maybe God will back off. So from what they say here, they, they knew. They knew the stories from Egypt and how God freed the Hebrews from captivity with the plagues. Right? The Egyptians resisted God like everything, and they're like, look, don't do what they did. Don't harden your hearts like they did, the Philistine priests say. Let, let, this, let this go. And it's interesting because twice in this section, it says that the hand of God was very heavy there. So I was thinking about that in regards to us. Right? Like I, I realize that this is like enemies of God's people, but even us as God's people, it feels sometimes like God's hand can be heavy on us sometimes. And so just one really important, simple key idea is pay attention when the hand of God is heavy upon you. Right? Pay attention when the hand of God is heavy upon you. Like the Egyptians, they didn't do, do anything right away. It took them all the plagues for them to let God's people go and listen to him. The people of Israel, they didn't pay attention when they were losing in battle. It took the Philistines then seven months to wake up and smell the coffee, right? So when, when look, when God disciplines us, when he corrects us or humbles us and, and, and has to like put us in our place because we're out of line, we're often so resistant to his efforts. We fight against him. But he disciplines us because he loves us. And he wants us to follow him and to know his heart. So don't harden your hearts when he's trying to do that. Right? Pay attention when the hand of God is heavy upon you. Because when that happens, we can either surrender to it, which, by the way, saves us a whole lot of trouble in life. Right? Running from God, resisting God, it doesn't lead to good things. So we either surrender to it or we end up like stubbornly clinging to our pride and just keep fighting him. And that's not going to end well for us. Okay? So pay attention when the hand of God is heavy on you. Okay, back to the story. Verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart. These are still the, the, the priests and, and uh, uh, fortune tellers saying, here's what we ought to do. Now then, take, a, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. All right, so they kind of test. They're, they're going to get rid of the ark. They send it back to Israel via cart with some cows. But just in case it's some strange coincidence, they're going to take this as a sign. They're going to watch and see which way it goes. 
That way they would know for sure. Is this really God's hand against us punishing us? Or is, just, like, is this just some bad luck? Verse 10 says, The men did so and took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. <laughs> and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the Lord of the Philistines, lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. Okay. Um, so in... Uh, found this article from 2019 kind of detailing how an archaeological find that is near Beth Shemesh was, uh, or at least where it was located, uh, looks to be the foundation of a temple. I think we've got a picture of that, right? Um, we don't know for sure that this was the stone table, the great stone that they're talking about, but it very well may have been. Now, we'll see in a minute in the story that the ark wasn't there long enough to build a temple uh, for it or anything like that. But it is possible that this place kind of became a sacred space after these events took place and eventually a temple was built there, right? So the great stone near Beth Shemesh. It says this, And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. Like, side note, I'm trying to picture this in my own mind here, and I'm, I'm going, how, how do I think the Israelites would have reacted when they opened that box with the golden images in it? Like, hey, what's in the box? A um, whole bunch of golden mice? <laughs> well, that's different, and what are those other five things in there? I have no idea. <laughs> right? I have no idea what that is. Right? But they put these gold objects on the great stone. And the men, it says, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Akron. So they watched the cows go to Israel. They see the ark be received by the people. They witness the offering be made to God. And they were satisfied that they had done the right thing in God's eyes. So when the offering was complete, they returned home. Probably a pretty big sigh of relief. Right? Verse 17, it says, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. Right? The five major cities slash city-states that were part of the Philistine territory. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to those five lords, both fortified walls and unwalled villages. So there were a lot of mice in this box. right? Every city, every little town, every little village was represented to try to appease God. And so we kind of get an explanation of their thinking. right? Like one golden hemorrhoid for each of the city-states and a bunch of golden mice for each of the cities in the territory. Okay, so now, and then of course the wood, 
for the cart became the altar, and the cows were the sacrifice. So the great stone, in verse 18 here, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Right? So here, the ark is back. Right? Seven months or so after they were conquered in battle and the Philistines took it. Now the ark is back. But that's not going to be the end of the tragedy in the story. Something else tragic occurs. Verse 19, it says, And he, talking about God, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Okay, now, depending on which translation you read, this number is going to vary. The language here in the original Hebrew actually says 70 men, 50,000 men. Big difference there, right? There is some debate about this number and whether it's just some sort of transmission error in, in recording or whether they got it right. Some translations just ignore the 50,000 enlisted as 70 people. And the reason they do that is that there likely weren't 50,000 people dwelling in that city, right? It's, it's just not that big. It's, it's pretty small. However, 70 people certainly doesn't seem like a lot. I mean, unless you're one of the 70, then that's enough. But it doesn't seem like some great blow to the nation as the scriptures are describing it. Like, think about that. Months earlier, 4,000 people were killed in the first battle, then 30,000 killed in the second battle. By comparison, 70 men is not quite such a big deal. So the bigger number, which basically is 70 and 50,000, 50,070, which is an oddly specific number, is more likely. Right? It probably means that the people of Israel came to Beth Shemesh to see the ark. At least that is the speculation here. And you might think, well, why would 50,000 people go to Beth Shemesh just to look at or look into this ark? But again, this is the most sacred and holy object in Israel. And God's literal physical presence dwelled above it. It probably would draw a huge crowd. Over 50,000 people. And think about it, would that really be all that hard to believe? I mean, 70,000 people will gather to see football games. 70,000 plus people are going to gather for a Taylor Swift concert. Multiple nights a week. Right? So 50,000 to see the ark where God is certainly would have been possible. And also keep in mind that normally the ark would be kept in the tabernacle where you would not see it. But since it wasn't in a tabernacle where it should have been, it probably drew a large crowd. Besides that, it doesn't specify that all these people like, came there on one day and looked all at once. Maybe it was a gradual thing. We don't know for sure. But either way, it says God struck them all down. Now, why would you do that simply for looking at the ark? Seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? But again, the specifics of the translation here are probably a little bit important. The translation that we have says look upon, like you're gazing at something. But others render it looking into the ark, which implies that some of the leaders or the people of the 
of, the, of Israel opened the ark so people could see the contents that were inside. The stone tablets of the law. Aaron's rod and the manna that were kept in there. And, and even if they didn't really open it, even if that's not what it's suggesting, they were clearly taking God lightly in this moment. Right? They were making a spectacle of the ark instead of treating it the way God had commanded. And God was not at all pleased with it. So these men were struck down. Verse 20, it says, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Right, so now the people of Beth Shemesh, who are you know, part of God's people, even they don't want the ark near them. Right, get it out of here. Right, so we're going to stop there in the, in the text, and we'll pick this up uh, continuing next week. But there's a kind of key idea that I think I want us to close with just to think about a little bit related to paying attention to God, and it's this. When it comes to God's correction, discipline, or wrath, it's best to be a quick learner. It is best to be a quick learner. If he's trying to get our attention, we need to pay attention. Right? Israel, God's people, treated the ark in the presence of God as some kind of good luck charm. Like they thought they needed to keep the ark close to them to harness the power of God. They had no clue about or remorse for their own sin, their own guilt, that they weren't following God. They just kept walking away from Him even though He was present right there with, in their midst. And they just took God for granted. It's why they lost the ark in the first place. But then even when they get the ark back, they still make light of God's presence there. They made a show of it. Like, it's like they hadn't learned anything from this. And then meanwhile, the Philistines, who didn't even know God, they recognized the power of God. They saw it. They sent the ark back to Israel because it had brought them calamity. They realized that the God this ark represented didn't need the presence of the ark to do these things. He was more powerful than that. That's why they sent it away along with an offering for guilt. Like besides the golden objects, they had the cart that was made of wood for an altar and the cows that could be the sacrifice. They did it right, or at least as right as they possibly knew how. And I think it's important to notice that these unbelieving people had a better idea and a quicker response to how, how to honor God. Let me, say this. Let me say that again. These unbelieving people had a better idea of how to honor God and a quicker response when God's hand was heavy on them than the people of Israel did. Like God's own people. It, yeah, it took them a while to come around, but at least they came around. Right? When it comes to God's correction, discipline, and wrath, it's best to be a quick learner. If we think about that for us, if we don't pay attention, we're going to be walking in misery for a while. Right? It was seven months of difficulty for the Philistines, and they learned quicker than anybody in this story. Like, if we don't pay attention, then things are just going to get worse and worse for us. Right? Like what happened with 
the plagues in Egypt. They were even slower learners than the Philistines. But in the end, it's probably going to lead like, to our downfall if we don't pay attention. Right? And that's kind of the message to Israel. Israel kept repeating their mistakes again and again and again. Even after they got the ark back, they still dishonored God with it. It's like they just never learned. No need to raise your hands, but do you ever feel like that's kind of us as God's people? Right? <sighs> Should have known better. Shouldn't have done that. Should have listened to God here. I should have paid attention when his hand was heavy on me, when he was trying to discipline me, when he was trying to call me back. Now the great thing is, is God is so merciful and gracious to us. So even though we've pushed him aside, and even though we've done it many times, he's waiting for us to come back to him, arms open wide, ready to receive us back, ready to forgive us when our hearts turn back to him. But it's important that when it comes to God's correction and discipline and wrath, when we experience that in our life, it's really best for us to be quick learners. So I I don't know if there's an area for you this morning where maybe God's trying to get your attention. Maybe he is today. Just some things come to mind. Maybe it's been a while, like something kind of stirring on your heart. Maybe Maybe it's been a long, long time, and you know... You're just not in line with where he's at. Maybe it's an area of sin you're struggling with. Look, it's going to be a whole lot better if we, if we seek his forgiveness. Maybe it's some way we need to bring our life in line with God's heart for us and God's plan and God's will. It's going to be a whole lot better for us if we change our ways. Maybe there's something he wants you to do that he's calling you to do. And you know it, but you're just resisting him. It will be a whole lot better for us if we stop resisting and start surrendering to him. I think that the message of 1 Samuel 5 and 6 is pretty clear on this idea. Like when it comes to God's correction and discipline and wrath, it's best for us to be a quick learner. I just want to take a moment and pray for anything that might be stirring in you this morning. I don't know, maybe this is kind of like, eh, it's not all that relevant. I feel like I'm following God pretty well. But maybe for some here, there is something on your heart where you feel like God's trying to get your attention, trying to call you back. Uh, And maybe it's even been difficult for you um, because you've been fighting and resisting. And um, I just want to pray and take an opportunity for us to, to pray and surrender our hearts to the Lord in those areas. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for... As strange as this story is, the important things that we can learn from it. Help us to not be hard-hearted. Help us to be people who pay attention when you're trying to, to track us down. Help us to be people who, are, who just have a spirit that's open to you. Rather than fighting, rather than resisting, rather than running, rather than rebelling or throwing up our fists at you, we just, that we would have these soft hearts. And where our hearts have begun to be hardened, we pray that you would break through that. That we, we right now just want to ask that you would soften us. 
and allow us to just receive you, to trust you, to chase after you. If there's an area that's coming to mind in, in our hearts today where we're, where we're not following God, Lord, we, we surrender that to you. We just pray this moment, in this moment of prayer, we want to offer that to you. Ask for your forgiveness. Ask for your mercy. Ask for your grace, which is just so unbelievably good. You are so unbelievably good to us. And so as we pray this, God, we, just, we ask that you would grant us that forgiveness and allow us to have right hearts before you once again. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com. 